Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 89. Soon we won't need an army. The 40 years of chaos is over. The best emperor for nearly a hundred years has reunited the empire and Rome is great once more. Marvellous. Wait a minute. Isn't the crisis of the third century referred to as the 50 years of chaos? Oh yeah, the unconquered restorer of the world is about to be conquered by his own soldiers. Aurelian and his Roman army had reached Thrace on the way to take on the Sassanids when one of the most unnecessary tragedies in imperial history took place. An official by the name of Eros had been caught lying to the emperor. Eros was terrified. Aurelian's reputation for harshness towards corrupt officials was legendary. Eros was convinced he was going to be executed. In order to save himself, he forged a death list with a forged imperial signature, which seemed to show that the emperor was about to execute many of his senior army officers. Of course, Aurelian was going to do nothing of the sort, but the army officers became convinced that he was. Fearing for their lives, they entered the great emperor's tent and murdered him. Amazingly, given his achievements, he had ruled for just five years. The rank-and-file soldiers of the army, who loved Aurelian and would have died for him, and most of the population of the empire, were devastated. The leader who had brought the empire so much glory had been killed because of treachery and stupidity. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Yep, the crisis of the third century should be over, but Aurelian has been murdered by some stupid army officers who fell for a stupid trick. Stupid. And it's about to happen all over again. The officers who had killed Aurelian were by now very frightened. If anyone found out who had done the evil deed, then they were in big trouble. Very big trouble. Most of the times when the army killed an emperor, they immediately put one of their own leaders on the throne. This time, though, anyone who claimed the throne would be suspected of old sword in hand's murder and wouldn't last too long. The generals did the only thing they could think of. They sent an envoy to Rome and told the Senate that the esteemed senators should choose the next emperor. The members of the Senate didn't know what to think. They thought it must be a big joke. Every time they raised a man to the purple, he ended up dead a few weeks later. Remember the Gordians, Pupianus, Balbinus, Hostilian, Quintilus, etc, etc. They sent the envoy back to Thrace to tell the army they didn't want to choose the next emperor, and the army should do it. As soon as the messenger arrived in Thrace and passed on the words of the Senate, he was sent back to Rome with the message, No, we really do want you to choose. The senators chose and they chose Marcus Claudius Tacitus. We know almost nothing about Tacitus before he became emperor. He was Italian and was said to be 75 years old on accession. He accepted the honour and hung around in Rome long enough to have Aurelian declared a god and appoint his half-brother, Florian, to the role of Praetorian prefect. He then set off for Thrace to take command of the army. When Tacitus arrived in Thrace, he immediately set about finding the men who had killed Aurelian. He soon identified the cowardly guilty commanders and had them all executed. He quickly defeated a few German tribes that had decided Aurelian's death meant that Rome could be pushed around. They were wrong. Aurelian had done his job too well. The army was too strong and too well trained and the barbarians were crushed with ease. Whether he was 75 years old or not, Tacitus didn't live long enough to reign over the empire for very much time. After six months or so, he died. Probably he was killed, although there's very little evidence. It's perfectly possible he simply died of an illness or from the effects of advanced age. 
Whatever the cause of the Emperor's death, the Senate thought they'd try again to see if they were still important and immediately declared Florian as the next Emperor. In the East, though, the best general in Rome was in charge of the Eastern Imperial Army. Marcus Aurelius Aquitius Probus was yet another Illyrian general. He was about 15 years younger than Aurelian and, given that he was made the supreme commander in the East, was probably the man Aurelian had meant to be his successor. Probus was another brilliant general and a hard-working administrator. He was nearly as hard and nearly as talented as Aurelian, but he was also interested in rebuilding the damaged empire. Probus was busy in the east managing the reunification of the eastern provinces when Tacitus died. He was, at this time, the most senior man in the army. The men in his legions knew it, and in 276 they proclaimed him emperor. Now, we've seen this before, haven't we? Emperor dies, Senate declares his brother emperor, best general in the empire proclaimed emperor by his men. General wins without a fight. Before, it was Claudius Gothicus, Quintilus and Aurelian. Now it is Tacitus, Florian and Probus. And of course the same thing happened. Florian's troops knew that Probus was the better man and they changed sides very quickly. The whole army was more united than ever and they were not going to fight over the succession. No, Probus was a great general, Florian was a nobody. Very soon Florian was dead and Probus was the undisputed emperor of the Roman world. Now, unfortunately, with Probus we have a problem. The sources are very scarce. His reign was longer than Aurelian's and quite possibly just as important in terms of rebuilding the empire. There is, however, very little documentation about what actually happened. The coinage of the time declares him to be unconquered and invincible and, indeed, the Roman army appears to have been highly successful during his reign. Coinage, though, cannot give the dates of significant events and most of what we know is actually guesswork. Probus immediately put down every remaining rebellion and invasion that was happening at the time. The main army was sent to Gaul to meet the Alamanni and Franks. There were no real border defences anymore, so the Germans could come into the empire whenever they wanted. But, and it was a big but, they were not allowed to sack Roman cities. Probus marched his troops up to defend the walled cities. Just like Aurelian, Probus beat the barbarians easily and then settled the defeated tribes on land inside the empire. Sometimes, Probus even let the barbarians in when they asked, without having to beat their armies. He made sure that they dispersed into small communities, gave a large number of fighting men to the legions and handed in all of their weapons. This worked very well indeed. Not content with merely defeating the barbarians along the Rhine, Probus took important steps to secure the boundary for the future. He planned and constructed a series of forts and depots on the German side of the Rhine at various crossing points, which he garrisoned with troops. The emperor took measures to restore economic stability to Gaul by encouraging the planting of vineyards, starting a wine trade which is as, which is as important today in Gaul, or as we know it, France, as it was then. Probus took the titles Gothicus Maximus and Germanicus Maximus, which show us that his campaigns in Gaul were very successful. It's said that Probus arranged the rebuilding of over 60 cities in the Gallic provinces. In order to assert their authority over the German tribes, the emperor's troops seized and imprisoned Semnon, the leader of one of the largest. They also seized his son. Probus thought this was a great idea, and pretty soon he had captured nine enemy chiefs. He brought them all together to his camp and made them bow down before him and then kneel at his feet and beg for mercy, after which he let them all live. 
The victorious emperor was the unquestioned ruler of the Roman world. He knew it, the Romans knew it, the barbarians knew it, and probably by now the dogs and cats knew it as well. Soon Probus had finished in the Rhine region and sent his generals to Egypt, where the Blemais were stirring up trouble. In 280 they had broken through the border, advanced up the Nile, and, in league with the city of Ptolemaeus, captured the city of Coptus. They were eventually expelled and order was restored by the legions. Once Probus had brought everyone back in line, he set about the task of a large-scale reconstruction of the dikes, canals and bridges along the Nile, something which had not been done since it had been undertaken by Augustus in the years 27-25 to 25 BC. An ancient text says, On the Nile he did so much that his sole efforts added greatly to the tithes of grain. He constructed bridges and temples, porticos and basilicas, all by the labour of the soldiers. He opened up many river mouths and drained many marshes, and put in their place grain fields and farms. This work was very important, because a lot of the food supply for Rome came from Egypt and the African provinces. In 281, having cut down a few minor revolts, Probus returned to Rome to celebrate a truly spectacular triumph. The Colosseum was wild with excitement at seeing so many thousands of captured foreigners and exotic animals. It said that one day the crowds witnessed the slaying of 200 lions, 200 leopards and 300 bears as part of the triumphant games. In Roman times, there was no such thing as animal rights. Soon all of the invading tribes all over the empire were defeated, and the emperor put the legionaries to work digging more ditches, building more fortifications, and generally making themselves useful. This hadn't happened for ages. Even when the Aurelian walls were built, they were, there were no spare soldiers to do the work. Now the empire's enemies were defeated, and there were loads of spare soldiers. For the first time in decades, the empire was fully at peace. The 47 years of chaos were over, at last. Probus joked that soon the Romans would not need their army. He didn't mean anyone to take him seriously. But some people did take him seriously. Some people took him very seriously indeed. Without the army, the soldiers wouldn't have jobs and they wouldn't have enough money to feed the family. This emperor may have done well, but he'd forced them all to dig ditches and build things. They were soldiers, didn't want to dig ditches and build things, and now he was saying he wouldn't need them at all. This was not good. In the spring of 282, Probus set off for the east, intending to crush the Sassanid Persians. On his way, news reached him that troops in Sirmium had proclaimed the Praetorian prefect, Marcus Aurelius Numerius Carus, emperor. Probus sent a group of soldiers to put down the rebellion, but they deserted him. The emperor was forced to flee and hide in a watchtower to escape from his own men. Soon, though, they tracked him down and assassinated him. He was only 50 years old and had ruled the empire, very successfully indeed, for six years. It seems clear, from the sparse records that are available, that Probus's reign was a highly successful one. Military calamities were a thing of the past, and the power and seeming invincibility of the Roman army slowly returned. It's clear from the fact that he had soldiers spare to build and sow that the military pressure on the empire was significantly diminished. He also encouraged the planting of vines and other crops in previously war-torn areas. What the crisis of the 3rd century demonstrates, though, is that even very successful leaders can be overthrown by a small conspiracy. It would take a very special man indeed to reverse this chaotic trend. So the crisis of the 3rd century was not over. 
the legions had murdered yet another very good emperor, just as peace and security were nearly within the empire's grasp. Stupid. If either Aurelian or Probus, both great men and highly successful emperors, had not been killed, then the empire may have recovered and thrived many years earlier than it did. On the other hand, if either Aurelian or Probus had not been killed, then the empire would never have needed Diocletian. The soldiers soon regretted their actions and Carus had all of the leaders assassinated. He then got the Senate to proclaim Probus a god, but did not bother to ask them to proclaim him emperor, he just got on with it. There was no opposition to him. The emperor announced that his two sons, Marcus Aurelius Carinus and Marcus Aurelius Numerius Numerianus, were now raised to the rank of Caesar, and he dreamed of forming a new dynasty. His dynasty, though, would last just three years. Carus easily destroyed the armies of the Sarmatians and the Quadi, who rushed over the border on hearing of Probus's death. It's said that his army killed 16,000 barbarians and captured 20,000. In 283, Carus set off to do what Aurelian and Probus had both planned to do before they were killed, give the Sassanid Persians a good kicking. He announced that dealing a mortal blow to the Sassanids was his principal ambition. The prospects, he thought, were very good, since the Persian king, Varan II, was engaged in a civil war with his own brother. Carus left his elder son Carinus in charge of the west and declared him, Augustus, full joint emperor. The emperor set off east along with his younger son, Numerian, his Praetorian prefect, Arius Aper, and an awful lot of soldiers. Carus was amazingly successful in Persia. He stormed over the Euphrates, meeting virtually no resistance. He stormed over the Tigris, meeting virtually no resistance. And then he stormed into Ctesiphon and occupied the Sassanid Persian capital, meeting virtually no resistance. The new emperor was still not content. Further and further he encroached into Sassanid territory. At the height of his triumphs, though, poor old Carus was found dead in his tent. Some think it was natural causes and some even say he was struck by lightning as a warning from the gods that he had gone too far over the borders, dictated by the divine Augustus. Some think he was killed by his Praetorian prefect, Aper. The prefect had managed to have his daughter married to the emperor's younger son, and, it seems clear, had imperial ambitions for his own family. In truth, nobody really knows. What we do know, though, is that in August 283, Carus was as dead as a doornail, and the Persian adventure was over. Carus was in charge for just 11 months. He fitted a lot into that short time. Numerian was proclaimed joint Augustus without resistance and immediately terminated the Persian wars. Numerian was known as a quiet man, more at home with books than swords, and he decided to do the thing that emperors did in this situation, declare that his forces had been entirely victorious and then go home as quickly as possible. He and the legions set off on the long, slow journey to Rome, they hadn't got much past Syria, when Numerian apparently became ill with a serious eye infection. He was forced to travel in a closed carriage, so his eyes were not exposed to too much light or dust. Only Praetorian Prefect Aper was allowed in to see him and issue orders in his name. Aper was, of course, not only the prefect, but also Numerian's father-in-law. After a few weeks, the imperial carriage began to smell very bad. Eventually some soldiers threw open the curtain and there, in the carriage, was a very stinky dead emperor. The commander of the imperial bodyguard stepped forward and loudly accused Aper of murdering Numerian. 
he demanded that Aper be put on trial for the crime. The commander of the bodyguard had heard a prophecy that he would become emperor after he had slain a boar, and Aper is Latin for boar. He proclaimed that Aper was guilty of the crime and must be executed. The bodyguards brought the frightened prefect in front of him, bound with ropes. He drew his sword and killed Aper with a single stroke. Clearly, the need for a trial was forgotten in the excitement. There is a school of thought that the commander of the bodyguard was actually the killer of Numerian and maybe also of Carus, and that Aper was innocent. We will never know. And this commander's name? Diocles, or as he became, Gaius Aurelius Valerius Diocletianus, the future emperor Diocletian. Well, we got through an awful lot of emperors in that chapter. Next time, though, we will focus on the man who eventually reorganised and stabilised the Roman Empire. In doing so, though, he changed it beyond all recognition. If you enjoy the podcast, then pop down to the website www.mythandhistory.podbean.com If you want to leave feedback or just make any comments or ask questions, then please contact me by email mythandhistory at gmail.com or friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. Also, if you had time, I'll be really grateful for a good review on iTunes. So, have a great couple of weeks and I'll speak to you next time.